Welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. Our guest author, great friend of the network, Joseph Pierce. His book, 12 Great Books, Going Deeper into Classic Literature, published by Ignatius Press. We'll also talk a little bit about another book, Poems Every Child Should Know, compiled and commentary by the one and only Joseph Pierce. Hey, it's great to see you. It's good to be back. From the, from the days of the Hobbits, 20 years later, uh, plus here on EWTN, Shakespeare and all the great authors uh, that you've talked about, Belloc and Chesterton over the years. And we're talking about 12 great books here. I'm interested because you just finished working on a series for us uh, on great literature, and there were a lot more books involved. So how did you go from the 40 books, let's say, 44 books you were dealing with in the series that people can look forward to, uh, to paring it down to 12, or what was the idea be behind what encompassed this book, this 12? Well, what I've just been doing for EWTN, and it's great to be back uh, doing it, is, uh, is uh, where we try to encapsulate the great books in a nutshell. So, you know, just in a, a, you know, three, three different books in half an hour show, this uh, allows me to go into greater depth. Mm -hmm. So instead of, say, it's 1,000 words on a book, it's, a, it's five or six or 7,000 words on a book. So it allows me to delve and dive a bit deeper beneath the surface. So the, right. so only cover, you can't, the, 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 you can't cover as many, but you right. can go deeper. Well, it's interesting. You've got the 12 here. So did you originally have longer versions you pared down? For the for the shorter versions, the nutshell kind of approach, or did you have those baselines and then expand it out to create these? It's actually normally easier if you're doing a nutshell to start from scratch than to try to pare something down because you, it's what do you leave out, mm -hmm. and if you leave something out, you're gonna you're gonna have a right. fragmented approach to the writing. So it's it's uh, might you might be able to take ideas from a short piece and expand them, but the other way around right. is very difficult. Right, and of course, uh, using the term nutshell, and and that was the kind of the genesis of, of doing this. But there's actually the half an hour show, and then there's actually spots that you did that are like two minutes long, that are even more of a nutshell, uh, and really give people a bottom line understanding of why these books might be important, at least maybe to uh, key their interest in find out more, right? Yeah, it's a sort of distillation, whereas this allows us to actually to elaborate and uh, perambulate and, and take our time more right, right. and go deeper. Now, uh, in the beginning, you got Dale Alquist's name mentioned here, uh, Chris Check from uh, Catholic Answers, a couple other names, but talking about fellow troubadours and true brothers, I understand the, the brother part. What, what's the troubadour Well, that's Well, that's actually interesting to say that during COVID, the five of us, we're friends, decided to get together and do an online just chat where the five of us to get together from our own remote locations and just talk and wax lyrical, whimsical, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was proved very popular with you know thousands of people tuning in. Mm -hmm. So we've kept doing it. So we've, we've become known as the Troubadours and they're very close friends of mine, so I thought I'd acknowledge right. this. Uh, I dedicate this book to them. Now you talk in the, in the very beginning, you talk about what are great books and what is a civilization. Uh, and you have the idea that, you know, people don't talk about a civilization like a Nazi civilization or a Soviet civilization. So what defines in your mind a civilization? Well, the secular understanding is it's, uh, it's a society that's complex and complicated. Um, so it, that's a sort of relativistic understanding. But in that mm -hmm. case, the Nazis are a civilization and the Soviets are a civilization because they're very complex and complicated tax systems and everything else. So I say that's not what a civilization is. I see. Okay. A civilization is a culture that conforms to goodness, truth, and beauty. Ultimately, civilization is Christendom. 
You say implicit in the Christian understanding of man's being and purpose is the fact that the human person is a pilgrim or wayfarer who journeys through mortal life with eternal life always in mind. And that's different, is that a different perspective than modern man has? Oh, very much so. So the label that, that scientific man gives to ourselves is homo sapiens. So wise man, which is an absurd title because if you look at the history of humanity, wisdom is not our defining characteristic. <laughs> mm. Homo viator is man on a journey. Each of our lives is a journey. And if, if each of our lives is a journey, each of our lives is a story. We talk about our life's journey. We talk about our life's story. So that's why one of the reasons we come to the truth, and Christ shows us this through his parables, is through the telling of stories, which is why literature is so powerful. Right, and storytelling itself, right? Uh, you, you quote Chesterton, modern man has not only forgotten the name of his destination, he has even forgotten that he has a destination. He does not know that he's a traveler, kind of what we just talked about there, and certainly has lost sight of what his destination is, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one thing worse than being lost, and that's not even knowing you're lost. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now. You know, if you know you're lost, you're looking for the way. If you don't know you're lost, you're just, you're just wandering around aimlessly, and I think that's where our culture is now. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a quote here from Hamlet, this above all to thine own self be true. Is that good or bad? That's bad. And the very important thing is people sometimes quote Shakespeare, right? right this was Shakespeare. Right. This was Polonius in Hamlet, who was a rogue, a spy master, um, a, a man who causes all sorts of mayhem and gets himself killed. That's part of a speech where he, he, he elucidates his philosophy of life. And that's radical relativism. But obviously, ultimately, we have to be true to the truth beyond the self. Mm -hmm. You're also not big on Descartes, huh? I'm not big on Descartes <laughs> at all, no, Cartesian man, absolutely not. I think, therefore, I am. What's wrong with that? Um, because ultimately, um, we think because he is. I see. Okay. You know, we, we're not the center of the cosmos. You know, reality doesn't begin with our, our own egocentric uh, our understanding of things. Right. We, we are part of something bigger, and we need to realize that if we want to understand ourselves, we have to connect with that which is beyond ourselves. Well, I think you have was it Aquinas in here. Man is not a mind that thinks, but a being who knows other beings as true, who loves them as good, and who enjoys them as beautiful. Yeah, well, that, you compare that to, to Descartes, and there's only one winner. Right, exactly. You say the understanding of civilization necessitates a denial of the enlightenment fallacy that man is progressing from a primitive barbaric past to a sophisticated civilized future. On the contrary, man is always oscillating between two poles of his very nature. So that is that kind of idea of like, we have the enlightenment and we're, we're getting smarter. Every, that's why history doesn't matter. The wisdom of the past doesn't, isn't really important because technology, and we're so much smarter than our parents, et cetera, right? Yeah, which is quite clearly not the case. And as regards uh, body count, the 20th century was the, was the century of the wars of irreligion where these secular fundamentalist ideologies ended up killing mm. tens of millions of people. You can't believe in a, in a, in a, an ascent of humanity if you understand history. Mm -hmm. And that's the trouble. We're ignorant of history. Right. You say here, you talk about what constitutes a great book in light of our understanding of civilization. They can be great objectively in what they are, and they can be great subjectively in what they have done. You go on to say, we should remind ourselves that important is emphatically not synonymous with good. Yeah, exactly. You know, that someone can have a great influence. So if we're not talking about people rather than the books, Hitler right. was great. Mein Kampf. So uh, yeah. In, it's, in it's a, a horrible book. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, in right. the sense that or, or, or Chairman Mao's little red book. Right. right? I mean, these, these are books that are great in the sense of their impact, 
but quite clearly pernicious in terms of uh, their, their, their telling of lies, ultimately. Right. You say James Joyce's book is a significant work of culture while at the same time being profoundly uncivilized and therefore harmful to all that is good, true, and beautiful. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's one of the several, con uh, what I would call, uh, controversial comments I'm right. making. I mean, there are many people who like James Joyce and want not like that comment. But the point is that James Joyce's book, uh, The Portrait of the Artist, I'm talking about there particularly, right, right. Uh, is, is a peon of pride. You know, it's basically, it's about, it's all about me, and he turns his back on God, he turns his back on the church, he turns yeah. his back on the Jesuits, because ultimately it's all about him. It's, it's pseudo-satanic. You say, commencing our odyssey in the pre-Christian or pagan age, we can declare that Homer deserves a place among the truly greats. And in fact, I know in the series, you started with Homer. And sometimes, uh, we even had a, a cartoon that was done, it was done on, uh, on, on the odyssey. Uh, and some people said, well, why are you running something pagan like that? Well, I always uh, refer to the words of C.S. Lewis when he says that the pre-Christian pagans are like a virgin awaiting the coming of the bridegroom whereas the neo-pagans like divorcees walking away from the marriage. So there's a very big difference between you know, the Athens before Christ. We talk about you know, Christendom being, bought, being built on the three, the three foundations of Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome. Well, Athens is not mm -hmm. just the philosophers, it's also the great writers like Homer and the great dramatists right. like Sophocles. Yeah, Aeschylus. And uh, you talk about pride, and it's, of course, we, uh, you know, Agamemnon, Achilles, Paris, and how you see in those stories how pride brings them all down. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's no doubt at all that the, the, the principal morality in these great Greek works of literature are proto-Christian. Mm -hmm. we, we can be very comfortable with the morality that they project. You say pagan myths contain, uh, uh, the Tolkien and Lewis believe this, pagan myths contain splintered fragments of the one true light that comes from God. You go on to say, for Tolkien and Lewis, however, the pagans were looking for the light that it would eventually be revealed in Christ and were assisted in that quest by the grace of the God that they did not know. Exactly. I mean, basically, you know, Christ chooses a particular moment in history to become incarnate. And it's a time when the cultures are ripened and ready. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is as true of Athens as it is of Jerusalem. So obviously, theologically, mm -hmm. that the Jews have progressed to, to the expectation of a Messiah. But, but the Gentiles have progressed through these stories and through the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle to be ready also mm. to embrace the Messiah. You say Odysseus, I thought it was interesting, is punished when he forgets his calling and succumbs to the temptation. Uh, his boastfulness after blinding uh, Polyphemus, that was the, the, the one-eyed guy, right? Yeah. The Cyclops. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. So he... It wasn't that everything he did was wrong, it's that he got sidetracked. Yeah, in fact, that in some ways, that's his original sin, because he, he, he escapes and he helps his men escape by saying, I'm nobody, right? So if you like, an act of humility, right. at least symbolically. And then when he gets away, he turns back recklessly and says, no, I'm not nobody, I'm somebody. Hmm. Well, this is an act of pride, and that brings down the curse upon him and his men. So it's like an original sin for which he has to pay the price. Right. You also point out, as I hadn't really thought about uh, Telemachus, his son, and, and his growth, and you see something in that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, he, at the beginning of the story, he's a child, so he throws down the scepter, the symbol of his authority, in a storm burst of tears, because he's, 
he has no power to do anything about the evils uh, that his that are besetting him and his mother. Yeah, the suitors. Right? The suitors, exactly. Right, right. You know, his mother's uh, being besieged. It's like like the siege of Troy. It's right, the siege right. of Penelope. Right. But he goes away. He grows in wisdom. But the key thing is, he has physical strength at the end. Mm -hmm. He can string the bow. But more importantly, he has moral strength because he's obedient to his father. He doesn't boast. He doesn't show off his strength. He hides it. Mm -hmm. So there's this act of wisdom as well as physical strength, moral strength. And you talk about Penelope, the, the, the wife, of course, and you kind of relate the idealized femininity to Dante's Beatrice as well, and, and Cordelia, right? Yeah, to me, that you know, what the great literature does is present these idealized feminine icons. Of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the perfection of this, but, the, but these, these feminine icons, if you like, point in her direction. And you make the point, I guess, uh, that you allude to earlier, the great books of early Christendom, such as Augustine's Confessions, City of God, and Consolation, is it of philosophy, bear the hallmark of Greek philosophy. And of course, you got Plato and then later Aristotle. So exactly. Basically. I mean, Augustine baptizes Plato, Plato and right. Thomas Aquinas baptizes Aristotle. Aristotle right. And Dante baptizes Virgil and Homer. Now, now you say here, I thought you say it's indeed ironic and tragicomic tragi that the age of disenchantment, I guess you're assuming that today, is that, yes. is that where we are, mm -hmm. uh, only reads the Inferno, considering, it's, it, considering it better than Purgatory or Paradiso. Why do they focus on the Inferno? Well, because you know, when, when, you, when you no longer have God, you still have viciousness. We can see viciousness. So they won't call it sin but they understand evil and, and, and viciousness, but they don't understand the penitential power of, 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 of purgatory, mm -hmm. of being contrite for our sins and paying for, for our sins, and nor do they believe in the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. So ironically, when you, when, you, when you get rid of God, the only place you're at home is hell. Now you say here also, you're, you're talking about the, the Canterbury Tales are one of the ones you talk about here, and the work serves to illustrate the, the whole idea of the pilgrimage, yes. which, which, which is your point. And it's interesting because it kind of, it's, it's a way of Chaucer's separating, like you said, in a sense, the real pilgrims from the hypocrites. Exactly. I mean, what, what he gives us in many ways is like a cross-section, not just of his own time, but of all times. You know, that the saints are always outnumbered by the sinners, mm -hmm. but the saints nonetheless are like the candle in the dark that we need to light the way, because if we had nothing but sinners, mm -hmm. right, we'd rip each, other, rip, rip each other apart. So, you know, he's just, there's enough sanctity, enough saints there to season the, uh, the, the menagerie of sinners that are around them. You say that the nihilistic disenchantment and despair of the 20th century has inspired the re-enchantment beauty of the works of Chesterton, Tolkien, Lewis, Waugh, and Eliot. How so? Yeah, well, basically, you know, the, one of the great things about history, you know, if every single century is a war between the city of man and the city of God. The city of man always has more political power, but the city of God obviously produces great saints, but it also produces great works of literature. So we, in the time, beginning of the 20th century, the so-called wasteland, where we basically reached a primeval soup of, of cynicism, maybe after World War II, we then have this period of re-enchantment where great writers such as Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, T.S. Eliot, mm -hmm. produces great works of Christian literature where they're saying, no, there's something beyond the wasteland. The desert is not all there is. Well, you say Thomas More's utopia and the works of Shakespeare can be seen as, as rep uh, 
as replying to the new humanism in the sense of Machiavelli and to the rise of anti-clerical secularism in England. Yeah, and again, that's interesting because that's the early 1500s, uh, Machiavelli, um, Thomas More, early 1500s, that's a thousand, uh, 500 years ago, and it's the same sort of issues, right? It's, it's secularism seeking to undermine the ethical fabric of society and Christians coming to the defense of it through philosophy and literature. Right, you mean it's not better to be feared than loved? <laughs> <laughs> okay, chapter two, after you talk about uh, Augustine's Confessions, which you would figure in a book like this, okay, it's a Catholic book, but you got Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and I think you have some interesting takes on Romeo and Juliet. Or oh, there's three different takes on it? Then? Well, there's three, but, but maybe we should concentrate on the two principal right. ones. The way, the way it's normally taught, is that it's a beautiful romance. Romeo and Juliet are, have a wonderful love of love, and it's just those stupid adults that get it wrong. Mm. But that's not what Shakespeare, the book that Shakespeare writes, he makes it perfectly clear that their erotic passion, which throws out reason uh, in pursuit of appetite, is self-destructive. Mm -hmm. And that's the way the play plays itself out. Now, it's interesting, I point this out as well, that Shakespeare makes Juliet much younger than in the source that he gets his inspiration from. She's only 13 years old. She's a child. And when, he, when he's writing that play, his own daughter is 13. So this I is see. a play written by uh, the father of a teenage girl about the dangers of, of, of teenage girls Getting, what and getting, does. Car getting carried away by emotions. Exactly, or trusting older right. men. Right? I see. Well, you can see that too. Uh, you also make a connection here, uh, I think, uh, to The Merchant of Venice as well. What's the connection between those two plays? Well, in both cases, uh, it shows us the necessity of a Christian understanding of love, which is a, a rational act. It's rationally choosing to lay down our lives for the beloved. So the, 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 the key component of the three tests in The Merchant of Venice is about learning to love self-sacrificially. And Romeo and Juliet is where you actually sacrifice everything else mm. uh, in order to pursue the passion, and that's destructive. Whereas uh, Merchant of Venice shows mm. us that embracing self-sacrifice is the path to peace and harmony. Now, uh, so you, John Lennon's All You Need Is Love is not your idea of, of <laughs> what great literature is encompassed well, by. Again, it. ironically, All You Need Is Love is true, but John Lennon's understanding of love is something which is narcissistic and therefore not love. Love cannot be about the self. Right. It has to be about the other. Right. Well, you could uh, maybe imagine you could put that in your poem book or something like that. <laughs> that was very popular when I was in high school. Chapter 3, Julius Caesar. Now, you make the... Caesar's one of the most popular Shakespearean plays and because it's not every high school curriculum. Uh, and you say it's difficult to fathom why it's always picked. Of course, you kind of allude at the end that it does double duty by having a little history in it and a little... Yeah, and, and, and also it, it's, it's fairly safe because it, the, 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 the Christianity in it is very subsumed. Basically, what, he, what Shakespeare's showing us in that is that politics stinks, that generally speaking, politicians should not be trusted, uh, that rhetoric is dangerous. In other words, using the power of the speak and wor spoken word to deceive can have destructive consequences. So there's, uh, he, it's, it's, very, it's very Christian, but it's subsumed, mm. which means it can be taught safely. Well, it's interesting too, and the corruption that, that that's in there. Yes. You know, uh, uh, Brutus's corruption. You know, uh, Cassius has obvious great lines about. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's not in our stars; it's in ourselves. One of the great insights, right? <laughs> the other one is Othello, and and you talk about here alongside Hamlet, King Lear, and Macbeth, Othello is the darkest of Shakespeare's 
plays? Why, why the darkest in your mind? Well, they were, they were, first of all, when they were written, the, the three of the darkest plays were written mm. at, at the same time, basically, in the space mm. of a year. So Othello, uh, Macbeth, and King Lear. Mm -hmm. This is a time when, after a brief period of, of religious liberty, uh, the laws were once again changed so that the Catholics were persecuted. This great period of, of um, desolation on the part of the Catholics, and that's reflected in that. Is that but, under James I? Yes, and, and, okay. it's, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that the, the evil character in Othello is called Diego. Uh, which is, of course, a Spanish variant on the name James. And, and, the, and Macbeth is a Scottish king. James mm. is a Scottish king. So this is Shakespeare's commentary on the evils of his own time. Well, the brilliance of Shakespeare, of course, is that it's applicable to all times. Right, and, and so you, you have that particular Othello, obviously, uh, you know, tragedy because he's lied to. You've got somebody who's basically <laughs> destroying everybody with his lies, yes. basically his envy, right? Yeah, it's his envy and, and, and his satanic, diabolical um, Machiavellianism. Right. But also, Othello's tragic flaw is his jealousy. Mm -hmm. You know, because he's so jealous that, and, and because Diego knows that, he fans yeah. those flames. Right. And then he believes all the lies because his jealousy is not allowing him to see reality. Right. In Macbeth, uh, again, you, you talk about here about the, the idea with people in power, and, and in some ways here, because he's given this, probably why we're not supposed to uh, dabble with what was going on in the future, because by having that bit of information, it really has a negative impact on his life, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we know the saying, the lies, damned lies, and statistics, but there's also lies, uh, damned lies and half-truths. Mm -hmm. And what, the, what the, the weird sisters tell him is half-truths. And then he fills in the vacuum with the rest and acts accordingly and it, to his own downfall. You know, b believing and trusting in the devil is a dangerous thing to do. So how do we jump from uh, Shakespeare to Frankenstein? <laughs> where, I mean, it's a lot of things. Uh, Boris Karloff would be proud to know it's in here, but why Frankenstein? Well, Frankenstein is actually a, a very powerful myth, a story about um, the dangers of scientism, the dangers of putting our faith uh, in technology, uh, the, the, the connection between uh, this obsession with scientism and the demonic. Um, uh, so it's, it's actually um, a very timely and timeless uh, commentary on if we put our trust in science as, as something which can deliver us from evil, we are actually succumbing to evil. Now you, you call this the 12 great books and you've got in here also, right, uh, Jumping Over the Wuthering Heights, great book. Uh, and then you have The Christmas Carol. I, is that, that a, really a book? I mean, it's kind of like a short story, isn't it? It's a novella. Okay. So okay. It's, it's a short novel. So you, you, why did you want to insert that? It probably is the shortest work in there. Yeah. Well, the Macbeth's not very long. Mm -hmm. um, well, it, to me, it's one of the most powerful parables ever written. It's, it, it is really, in some sense, a retelling of the parable of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge is, uh, is the prodigal son, and his conversion uh, on Christmas morning is one of the most powerful mm -hmm. Uh, uplifting, edifying moments in all of literature, and, and there's some good theology in there thrown in, so it's good. Right, I thought it was interesting, uh, you, you, you see Marley as being a purgatorial character rather than somebody who's been totally condemned. Yeah, because he has a sense of contrition, mm -hmm. he says, mankind was my business, and he's, and he's there to try to help Ebenezer Scrooge so right. he doesn't follow in his footsteps. Well, that's not something a damned soul is going to do. Right, right. no, that, that's a very good point. Now, thinking about it as well, you've got all the Shakespearean plays which were basically plays, not books, but you include them as well. So, uh, chapter nine, I, I, this is, I didn't realize this is the only book that Oscar Wilde ever wrote. The, the 
picture of Dorian Gray. Was that about himself? Uh, there's absolutely a very large autobiographical or quasi-autobiographical right. evidence uh, element to the uh, to the story. You know, it's, it basically is someone who he makes a pact with the devil mm -hmm. uh, and pays the price. And and it's profound. The, the moral is profoundly is profoundly Christian. Very dark, but the moral is profoundly Christian. Right. Other books. Uh, a man who was Thursday. We actually uh, did something with that on EWTN and uh, some of the other ones here. Brides had revisited. Uh, at the, uh, you know, others that have Catholic, more ca overt Catholic connections to them. So, uh, which of these is your favorite? Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. Uh, if I, I would probably be, if he forced me, I'd probably say Brideshead Revisited. Mm -hmm. Why? Um, because uh, even in War said in the preface to the second edition of it that the, uh, it, the, the theme is the workings of divine grace in the lives of closely connected individuals. So the actual protagonist of the novel is the, the invisible hand of God. Mm -hmm. And so you have to read it on that supernatural level. And when you do that, it comes alive. Most people don't see it. Uh, thanks be to God, Evening War shows us that's the way we should read it. And the, the fact that the first part of the novel, everyone's moving away from God, and the first part of the novel ends on Good Friday. Second part of the novel, everyone's coming back towards God in conversion, and it ends on Easter Sunday. So a profoundly Catholic work. Well, I hate to have you a speed review of poems every uh, child should know. We got about a minute. Uh, Why did you decide to put this together? Well, you know, I, I, I love poetry in general. I love children's poetry. But poems every child should know is not children's poetry only. Part mm. one absolutely is. It's poetry, poetry for younger children, the mother goose nursery rhymes. But poems every child should know include grown-up poems like The Charge of the Light Brigade, for instance, by Alfred Lord Tennyson, uh, Lepanto by Chesterton. So these are poems that children should know. They're not necessarily all children's poems. And in many cases, I'll put a commentary in, so to, uh, discussion questions to allow children uh, of all ages to dig deeper and delve deeper into the, those poems. Do you think uh, poetry has fallen by the wayside? Well, I think we live in an age that's like a dust storm in a desert. We're all distracting ourselves to death. Poetry is like prayer. You have to find silence and a, and a time of quiet to enjoy it. And that's something which all of us need to find more time for. Amen. Thank you so much. My pleasure. God well, bless. It's good to be with you, Joe Pierce. That's Poems Every Child Should Know. And, of course, the book we spend most of our time on, 12 Great Books, going deeper into classic literature, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Check it out. And look for Joe's series on EWTN as well. I'm Doug Keck. This has been Bookmark. We'll see you next time.